This piece of content is brought to you by the Minis Forum HX77G, a fantastic little Windows gaming console that comes with a 6600M, a 7735 HS, and honestly impressed me with its performance. Click the link in the description and make sure they know I sent you to support the channel and support yourself by getting this cool product. And also support the channel by clicking the links in the description for Wondershare Recover It, a fantastic data recovery tool. And we'll talk about these sponsors more later, but for now, let's just go on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today I am joined by somebody who has been on twice before. They're, well, I was, I was going to say they're fan favorites, but they're really favorites of myself, selfishly, because there's different types of guests. You know, there's experts, there's what I would consider my peers on YouTube or in podcasting, where it's more like an exchange of like how we feel about things. But when I have someone like this guest on, I, I really feel like I learn far more than usual, and it, it doesn't just benefit me that I'm putting out content. I think I am getting smarter and better understanding of things I'm really rarely honestly thinking that all that hard about. And so it's it's really a blessing, I think, when this guest comes on, and I advise everybody listening to go listen to the previous two episodes he was on, but for those who refuse to listen to them please introduce yourself to everybody who you are uh, what got you into law and then really uh, what keeps you going podcasting and making videos on the side in addition to of course your main job sure so my name is rick hogue i am as i say at the stop start of my virtual legality episodes uh the managing member of the hogue law law firm of northville michigan uh, and I've been doing corporate transaction law since I graduated from law school in the early 2000s. And I started doing mergers and acquisitions and venture capital and private equity and all those fun words that you hear in the Wall Street Journal or on CNBC or wherever. Uh, and I opened my own firm in 2016. And at that point, I wanted to market the firm and my expertise in a way that I thought was different than large law firms that were just going out there at cocktail parties and doing the normal things that large law firms do. So I wanted to be different from my old firm and not just different because I was cheaper. Uh, and I, so I sponsored the Easy Allies, a, a podcast that does video game stuff out of California uh, with one of my first marketing budgets and went from there into the world of creating YouTube content and appearing on radio shows and things of that nature, talking about the law and pop culture. So that's become the law in video games primarily because I'm a big gamer and I love that stuff. But it was really all these things that impact the news that you read, the stories that you see that maybe people don't think about, the, the mergers and acquisitions side of things, the legal side of things, regulatory side of things. And that's turned out to be a lot more than just a marketing endeavor for the firm. Mm -hmm. It's proven to be more popular than I would have hoped, and I really enjoy doing it. So for those interested, I do Virtual Legality. That's the main show on my YouTube channel at Hogue Law. Uh, and you can find me complaining about all sorts of things, from Michigan Wolverine referee calls to legal issues on Twitter slash X at Hoglaw as well. 
I think I'm just always going to call it Twitter. I, I've resigned <laughs> myself to that. Um, but you know, their domain is still Twitter. I really don't. Think I, I know it. It is still technically Twitter. I, I'll leave it at that. Uh, that would be a whole rabbit hole of a conversation if we started there. Um, you know, and I'm sure we've talked about this before, but the for, when you've really started doing this, did it initially get spurred on simply because you saw a lot of misconceptions out there online? Is that really what got you going? Yeah, I think that was some of it. So when I was sponsoring the Easy Allies, Microsoft had just started purchasing companies and mm-hmm. so there were a lot of headlines when they announced their deals that they were done before they were closed and things of that nature. And so I would see those headlines in IGN or GameSpot or anywhere else. And I would say, okay, we just have to have a better understanding of the fact that this company isn't owned by this company just yet. And there's a process to go through. Uh, and when the Easy Allies asked me those questions, they did a segment called Help Us Out Hogue. And that proved to be more popular than I would have thought answering legal and business questions about video gaming. And I said, you know, we can do this on our own channel. And that's how virtual legality was born. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because um, and I'm bringing up this other channel because it reminds me of a similar situation. There's a channel called Payroom, P-E-R-U-N. And he had a gaming YouTube channel, just like RPG stuff, maybe a few thousand views of video. And then maybe a month after the war in Ukraine started, he puts out this one hour analysis of like military funding and tactics and it gets over a million views. And it turns out it it seems like he works for like a war think tank in Australia. And he thought, surely no one will want to see my PowerPoints online. And lo and behold, no, we need more (laughs) experts jumping online and answering what you might think are boring questions because... So many people have so much emotion in the arguments they get into online, and half of them could just be shot down like that by anyone with basic knowledge of the basic professional knowledge of what they're actually talking about. Yeah, and I see that a lot, especially in gaming, where you have that passion amongst the consoles, right? Xbox versus PlayStation. And certainly some of the things that I have said on my channel have resulted in more internet trolling and internet bad behavior than I would have expected for what I consider to be relatively milquetoast statements on Sony or Microsoft in this sphere. So it's been interesting. It's been interesting to be this online for the past five years. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know what you think about this, but I got to just say, especially in like the last year, I just think most people could maybe turn down the volume 10% here at least. Like there's just something I've noticed this, you know, and I'm sure you've probably seen similar things in the console side. I mostly cover the PC hardware side, but like all of a sudden every article about something from Intel or AMD or Nvidia is turning into a life or death situation and the company's evil. I'm not just seeing it from people in the comments, but you know, people, journalists writing articles on some of these websites Whatever is a way to turn a story into calling the company evil, like they're going to take that route. And it's just, it's getting a little, well, it's getting boring, honestly, is what it is. It was at first jarring, but now it's just honestly getting boring where it's like, well, everything they do is evil. Is anything evil? Yeah. I mean, I think journalism and storytelling is an interesting part of all of this. And it's one of the reasons why the second show I do on my channel, Hangouts and Headlines, is really analyzing the subtext of what people decide to cover and how they decide to cover it. And that rose out of me doing the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial with some Mm -hmm. friends of mine that were focused on litigation and trial tactics uh, and that I was just on board with to help a friend. And that turned out to be a very popular set of internet videos. 
uh, and that turned into looking at the way the media treats things. And certainly with respect to Microsoft and Sony and antitrust, whether it's their, those companies or tech in the PC field or otherwise, you have a lot of strong feelings. And those are coming through not just in comments, but in those headlines and in those opening statements that have to describe Microsoft as you know a multinational conglomerate or something else when mm-hmm. they start that story. And so you have a lot of interesting things happening there. So I tend to agree that the media itself is not really stopping the fires from spreading on the internet. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, and um, I think a large degree of that is they see the engagement and they go, well, let's play into it. And I think it sometimes works, but I think, I think it's somewhat short term because I notice on YouTube, like the tech tuber sphere that I kind of run in, that there are these cycles of engagement And I don't know if a lot of my peers have noticed this, but if I've noticed views on a lot of channels just start going down suddenly out of nowhere, and it seems like it's out of nowhere. But if I had to guess, people will be outraged, they will give you clicks, and then they get bored of it. And if all of your opinions turn into that, subconsciously, people aren't going to be interested in your opinion anymore because it's always the same thing. And I just wonder, especially when you look at all these websites a lot of them going out of business right now, if they realize that while they're getting more clicks short term, eventually subconsciously they're training people to not be interested in what they're saying in the long term. I think that's a substantial possibility. I mean, I'm an optimist by nature Mm -hmm. and I like to be as positive as possible on these questions, but certainly when you get only the negativity and only that side of storytelling, whether it's through journalism or Twitter or elsewise, it can be a bit much. I think some people just shut down, shut off, leave the sphere at all. So those clicks don't exist, right? If, if you're just too negative all the time, I think people have bowed out of the discourse mm-hmm. completely. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to start with a kind of easygoing question about something that's long settled by now, I believe, uh, with a question here from QH Freddy, who asks, with the dust on the NVIDIA R merger having settled, How do you say your perspective has changed or been reinforced on the relevant issues surrounding it? Are there any important lessons to learn from it? Do you think we are at a better place with antitrust law when it comes to legal certainty and foreseeability than we were before that merger? And and to my memory, you thought it could go through, but I remember you having a decent amount of doubt about that when compared to other mergers we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, at that point in time, it was being blocked when we talked about it, and you could see some of the settlement talks from the documents that had been released to the public that NVIDIA had tried to enter into to assuage the fears of regulators. And so it seemed unlikely to go through. To me, there's a certain amount of certainty with that particular deal, as we talked about, because they were trying to enter in and control a separate marketplace, which isn't the same as some of the other deals we'll talk about as part of this video. So I think that the, the ARM NVIDIA deal is the cleanest block mm-hmm. that we've seen and are likely to discuss today. Uh, but I don't know that there's a lot of legal certainty out there for tech in general. Right? Mm-hmm. You do have a Federal Trade Commission in the United States that has proven to be very aggressive, regardless of whether or not they're winning federal hearts and minds. And in the EU and the UK, you've seen a certain amount of aggression with respect to the Microsoft deal that maybe couldn't have been anticipated as much as a year ago but now probably has to be taken into account for any transaction that a tech company wants to enter into. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, though, QH Freddy also writes in, and I'm, tell- I'm just warning you ahead of time, if you-, if you start laughing, he submitted like 
20 questions <laughs> for this one, awesome. but a lot of them are very good. And so you will see this name pop up a lot in this episode. It goes, do you think the ambiguity and lack of legal certainty around merger authorization criteria is an intentional move by legislators? Is it artificially increasing the risk and cost associated with big mergers uh, by reducing the incentive of companies to make a high market share, uh, likely anti-competitive acquisitions, basically filtering out a lot of possible acquisition attempts just by discouraging companies from doing it in the first place if it feels like a gamble. Moreover, fixing the criteria in law could result in the regulator having their hands tied, though. Good in it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the answer is legislatures, these these laws are old, right? The Sherman Act, the Clayton Act. And again, mm-hmm. I'm a United States lawyer, so I'm primarily talking about United States law. We'll talk a little bit about other jurisdictions, but I always caution people that I have to talk about those as a person trained in law and not someone practicing in those places. But in the U.S., those laws are old and they were written to be broad uh, because we didn't know what industries would come out, right? Like if, if they were narrowly drafted or more narrowly drafted than they are right now, who knows whether tech would be covered at all because we're talking mm-hmm. about a law from 1890 uh, and whether or not Microsoft can buy Activision is not something that could be properly calibrated for back then. Uh, so legislatures intentionally made them broad so that they would be applicable to technologies they couldn't even imagine and industries they couldn't even imagine when they passed the law. But they're not intentionally ambiguous as a chilling effect kind of concept Mm -hmm. to keep companies from entering into transactions. Now, the regulators might be doing some of that. The FTC, the DOJ, the CMA in the UK, the European Union in general, you could accuse them of trying to have a certain ambiguity in their enforcement to prevent people from even thinking about entering into the deals in the first place. The European Union has been uh, has been historically one of those jurisdictions that has proven to be difficult to, to close deals in, mm-hmm. even though they don't appear to be the toughest actor right now, especially with respect to Microsoft. And so I think it's justified for someone to say some of these regulators are acting that way, but that's not, that's not the passage of the law. The law is broad because it needs to be broad in order to be applicable across a century of time. Mm-hmm. Like basically, pretty much all governments that have lasted, there's a certain amount of broadness in the writing because it has to be but it's not to chill it's because they need to be able to cover things in the future and probably allow future legislators to be able to interpret new things with that law right right i mean the sherman act basically just says restraints of trade are illegal clayton act says an attempt to monopolize or to abuse power in the market is illegal but all those terms in and of themselves aren't defined even in those laws So they're very broad, and the courts actually had to narrow them a little bit because every contract is a restraint of trade in and of itself. And so Mm. the courts have had to interpret for 100 years that they don't mean restraint of trade is illegal. They mean abusive restraint of trade is illegal in the United States. And you see those kinds of court decisions across various jurisdictions. And that's one of the reasons why when we talk about the European Union, and I say I'm a United States lawyer, they have language in there that says, you know, abuse of a dominant market position is illegal. And that's mm-hmm. all going to be defined in their court precedent and and under their decisions for the past however many years. Yeah, and even that wording is different than how we put it, right? Mm-hmm. In the U.S. as well, like abuse of a restrictive trade is not arguably exactly the same thing as a, abusing a dominant position, right? So right. right there, that would just change entirely how they, which deals each one may block too, although they, they are usually on the same page. Yeah. If you were to characterize these things for the past 10, 20 years, my time in practice, the European Union was the most aggressive and most difficult jurisdiction to get approval from back when I started practicing law. 
Um, and so they've always kind of taken a more narrow approach than the U.S. in saying this this transaction shouldn't be allowed. Um, and now it looks like the U.K. might be taking up that position instead of the European Union. Mm-hmm. All right. So got the opening conversations out of the way here. Uh, I think the first major conversation we have to have, uh, the reason we scheduled this episode where it was actually, is the Microsoft Activision Thing, which I apologize to people for this coming out late, but I know we at least I wanted to schedule this on the last possible day that the deal should close. Turns out it closed Monday, so I guess we could have done it then or something. But anyways, how let me let me see here. My memory is that you were of the opinion, much more so than the NVIDIA ARM thing, that this deal was likely to go through because it was hard for you to make a bulletproof argument for why. It was really a monopoly, especially if I remember correctly, if you take into account, you know, you can argue this is a monopoly, then don't we have to argue all of these other examples are monopolies? Though, so too, if I'm, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing kind of what your opinion was a year or two ago. And it seems like it's mostly closed now. We'll, we'll get to if it really is actually with the next subject. But has your sentiment on if this was going to close wavered at all from, yeah, the last time you were on, I think it was like 10 months ago. Like, what were the arcs, the ups and downs? How would you describe the story of, how, from what you remember, how this acquisition started and what the argument was to stop it? And if there was ever a time where it seemed like one side really got the upper hand or if it was always kind of the same story throughout this whole fight? It definitely was not always the same story throughout all of this. I mm-hmm. would say when it was announced in January of 2022, I covered it on my channel. And one of the things I said was that a motivated regulator, just looking at the top line items, Microsoft, big tech company, and $70 billion could decide that they wanted to make hay with certain things. And I had identified that if they were going to, it would probably be cloud and game pass, give or take. Now, Most of the regulators said, no, those aren't markets that are separate from the sales of games overall. And one of the things that everybody really has to remember when we talk about antitrust is that defining the market is one of the most important things that a regulator and the parties that are being regulated have to decide upon. Because you can imagine any market, if it's defined small enough, can find somebody as a monopolist, right? Mm -hmm. You're a monopolist in Moore's Law is Dead videos. I'm a monopolist (laughs) in Hogue Law videos. Uh, And so, I said a motivated regulator might try to go after cloud or Game Pass. And that's really what we wound up seeing a little bit, is that the UK and the US were motivated. Now, reasonable minds can differ there. That's the catchphrase on my channel uh, on whether or not that motivation was justified. But the US moved against Microsoft on a cloud basis, and, and so did the UK. Now, the UK also had a little component of console monopolism that they were trying to go after that Microsoft called them on with some bad math. Mm-hmm. And so they had to drop that as part of their move. But I would say that I started characterizing the deal as less likely to go through when the CMA in the UK blocked the deal mm-hmm. and the FTC was suing in their regulatory capacity. So... That struck me as a time period about middle of the year when it was the least likely to go through and it really depended on whether Microsoft had an appetite to fight it. Because Mm -hmm. from a legal perspective, I still think those arguments are bad and they're primarily bad because Game Pass, subscription services, and cloud delivery are not, in my opinion, separate markets 
to the sale of video games, either on Blu-rays or as digital downloads, that those are just different mechanisms to get the same product Mm -hmm. to you. So in general, the courts have held, in the United States at least, that different mechanisms of selling you a product don't make a different marketplace. And so while Microsoft could be a monopolist in cloud services or a monopolist in essentially Game Pass or Mm -hmm. subscription services, multi-game subscription services, that that wasn't useful enough, I didn't think, to saying that the gaming industry was somehow at risk and that it should be violative of the antitrust laws. And and where would that stop, right? Because if what if they find a way to sell it on tapes? Like, is this not a new medium? What, What if someone invents a novel way for you to get the game? What is that really a monopoly if like someone has a new cartridge? Because you could make that argument, couldn't you? You could. You, and that's the definition question is you can always make those arguments and then you have to decide whether or not that's something that's a legitimate market. And the way that the courts are supposed to look at it is if somebody would substitute into a different way of getting that product, if the price were raised, then that's the same market. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine Game Pass were tripled in price, would people suddenly download the games instead? Would they buy the games? I think to some extent they would. And if, if there's any material amount of people that would move over there, then that's supposed to be considered the same market. Mm-hmm. And the FTC tried to argue that they were separate markets. The court mm-hmm. really didn't back them up on that. You saw them try to get a preliminary injunction earlier this year. Once they lost that, they really lost most of their footing there. Uh, now, the FTC is still pursuing a investigation as to whether or not the Microsoft and Activision deal should be unwound at this point. They can't block it anymore. It closed on Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. But the FTC still has the authority to unwind it if they can get a court to agree that it's in violation of the Clayton Act. Mm-hmm. And, so, and would you say that's a... Because that, that was the next thing, and I think we're just going to roll right into it. Like, um, you know, and maybe it's just because everyone who talks about this on Twitter definitely has an emotional opinion about if it should go through or not. And so anyone who is likely to share this news is probably someone who's likely rooting for it. And it's probably just to say, well, now it's done. Stop arguing. Let's move on. There's nothing else. But I was surprised then because that's kind of what I saw the zeitgeist summarizing last week. When I looked before we started recording it, I'm not sure you can say it's really a done deal. Can you? Or is it truly secured? Would you bet your life on it because there's a hearing in December anyways, right? And the FTC, some of the statements they made that I read on Reuters, they were like pretty forceful. We're going to keep fighting this statements. Yeah. Well, as a lawyer, I wouldn't bet my life on anything. Uh, that's I, just I was us. guessing you'd say that we're a risk averse profession. That's just what we do. Uh, but um, I think that you can take certain solace in the fact that Microsoft was willing to close and pay $70 billion with the FTC still out there. That suggests that their analysis is that there's a very limited likelihood of Mm -hmm. the FTC winning the day there, and I tend to agree with them. So I guess I'm curious how you think that hearing would go then in December, right? Because what Obviously, these are opinions. Two people can have different opinions, and one person can be wrong, and maybe they're both not stupid. But why is Microsoft calculating, and if you had to guess, why this is likely to be a done deal? And why do you think the FTC is watching this deal close and then going, well, we're still going to try in December? Well, if you want to have the, the generous opinion of the FTC, it would be because they legitimately think that there is a problem, that the public interest would be best served by them stopping and unwinding this deal. That's, mm-hmm. that's the generous interpretation of what the FTC is doing. The more politically motivated interpretation is that 
They want to get ahead on a spike. Microsoft's a good head. They, they think they can do it. And then so they are going to continue to spend the time and resources to try to get them, even after mm-hmm. the fact. Uh, I think Microsoft's position is that it's harder to get them to unwind the deal than it was to try to get a preliminary injunction. And a federal judge basically said they had no chance of that preliminary injunction. So how is it going to get better for them in terms of argumentation over the course of their regulatory hearing and then another federal court that they would have to convince after that? And so I think Microsoft is right there. The Mm -hmm. FTC has a set of rules, just as a for instance, that says if we go and try to get a preliminary injunction and we lose, we should really think about whether or not we're going to pursue this because a court has looked at it and said Mm -hmm. no. Now, they, in those same rules, they say, well, the preliminary injunction hearing isn't a hearing on the merits. The court isn't deciding wholly whether or not this deal is violative and whether we've failed in our case. They're just deciding a kind of preliminary question. And so we can still pursue, uh, pursue it if we think there's a public interest concern, mm-hmm. but that our tilt should be to be, really be cautious about this. And once they've lost that original preliminary injunction hearing, they become much less likely to win the day through now a long-term process in their own hearing and through the federal courts after that. So I think it's safe to assume that this deal is closed. I think the FTC is unlikely to be able to unwind the transaction, but they're going to give it the old college try. One, because it makes headlines. Two, because $70 billion, right? I mean, like that's just a big number up there on the top line. And so that makes it a, a sizable target for a regulator. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm trying to remember this appeal... Was was this something that was filed like a few weeks ago then by the FTC? Yes, they're appealing the decision to not grant them the preliminary injunction. Obviously, that appeal in and of itself is not quite a normal course appeal because they can't get satisfaction from an injunction being issued now. Uh, that deal has closed. Uh, and so it's it's kind of not as interesting as the fact that they're going to pursue their own regulatory hearing and and try to get their own judge to say it should be blocked and then go seek federal blocking. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, and I don't think Microsoft is, as concerned about that appeal process as the potentiality of what they could get going through their own process more completely. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just trying to remember, right, this this appeal wasn't like, this was it, did they file for this right when the leak came out basically or like a week after that leak came out of all of those microsoft documents i'm trying to remember or was that appeal already there months ago that it was going to be december 6th or something uh the the leak which is the microsoft attorneys mm-hmm. putting the documents to the court that weren't redacted was a part of the filings associated with all of this mm-hmm. i don't know which hearing it was where those came out because i i didn't look at that in advance but it's a part of everything here. They said that they were going to appeal pretty quickly after they lost their, their preliminary okay. injunction case. So they're not exactly related, but they're a part of the same legal uh, rigmarole. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I just wanted to make sure, because I, I don't remember, and if they would have if they would have been going even harder after that leak happened, I would have waved my finger at the FTC and said, well, what, now that we know about these files, all of a sudden it's bad, you already have access to them, you know? But it doesn't sound like that's what happened, right? No, no. They they wanted to appeal because they didn't think that they should have lost. I don't think they were actually really that close based on what the judge wound up writing. So it's, it's mm-hmm. not likely to be a successful appeal there. Uh, and so the FTC is tilting at windmills a little bit. And maybe that's righteously depending on your perspective, or maybe that's wastefully. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because I, I'm of two minds about this, right? I actually 
re-listened to part of, well, part of both of the, the previous episodes you were on. And there was some point in one of them where we started talking about like, because I think there was a reader mail in one of those episodes where somebody was like, isn't it odd though that a lot of companies trying to get big deals done now are getting all of this fuss thrown at them when it kind of seems like 10 or 20 years ago, everyone was just allowed to do whatever they want. And now people are just finally paying attention. And I believe you said, yes, kind of, but, you know, at a certain point, people are paying attention when they're paying attention. And if what you do is all of a sudden decide to reinterpret everything, I mean, this is going to be like a Venezuela situation where you just reverse all of this business that was done. And then no one will feel safe doing any business if they think because of a new administration, the stuff that's been done for 20 years can just be reversed at the drop of a hat. And so there's a part of me that goes, you know, with like completely separate from whether or not you think Microsoft should be allowed to acquire Activision. Once a deal's closed, doesn't it start to look bad if they did reverse it after all of this money was spent finishing it, right? Like they were supposed to get this done before the deal closed, not like how many companies would think twice about feeling safe about doing mergers if they knew half a year after it was closed, it really wasn't. Oh, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made that the structure that the United States antitrust laws use, which is this kind of, we can block, but we don't approve structure versus what the UK and the EU do, which is we approve the deal. We approved it, we're done. Mm -hmm. Uh, The FTC and the DOJ don't approve deals. They just decide to allow them to go through and then they can unwind them if they make a decision later. Now you look at things like Facebook, Meta, and WhatsApp and Instagram, and they're trying to unwind those deals. They're a decade old. Uh, And I I tend to agree, again, with the tilt of a corporate lawyer that does business transactions, that there should be a point in time where we need to have certainty or else you are going to chill investment in, in these various kinds of economic transactions. But the FTC, as it stands right now, under the current administration, the current leadership, is more likely to go and take these steps than they were in the recent past. I don't love that personally, Mm -hmm. but I understand the arguments for it and saying, hey, look, antitrust laws weren't used enough maybe in the last Mm -hmm. administration or the one before that. Uh, And so I think it's very difficult. And certainly the more uncertainty you have with all of these processes, the more you kind of add to the difficulties of having efficient transactions in in an economy. But overall, I am reluctant to just paint the FTC as the bad guys uh, or Microsoft and Activision is the good guys. It's really a little bit more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm curious though, <laughs> how much, I don't know how much you paid attention to the uh, documents that leaked, you know, from Microsoft, because I, I don't usually do a lot of console videos unless I have a huge interest in the subject in this one. I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. You know, I, I put a video out about it and I put it out because I couldn't believe that it seemed like in in so many words or not really so many and very few words, (laughs) Phil Spencer just said our business model doesn't work and it might be killed off within 10 years. Wasn't that his argument then is because our business is uh, failing, you have to let us become bigger. Is that, uh, is, is that what you interpreted kind of as what he was saying? And if, if so, like, is that a good argument in your opinion? Well, on the one hand, I think it's important for people to recognize that the Xbox One generation was disastrous for Microsoft, right? And and some of what you saw in those emails and those correspondences were reactions to the market position they found themselves in with that generation. And so they were saying that they can't they can't 
compete on the same bases as Nintendo and Sony with respect to consoles and exclusives and things. So they have to find another way. And some Mm -hmm. of that is acquisitions. But what we knew about this generation before it started and without any leaks was that Microsoft was pivoting to a software as a service kind of model with the Game Pass subscription model. And so all those correspondences really kind of reiterated for me was, yeah, they need a lot of content for that model to make sense. um, But that isn't a bad thing for their legal position. Uh, it's just stating the facts that they need to they need to brand differentiate. They need to fight on a different playing field because there's too much territory that's already been gobbled up in the console exclusive walled garden space. Mm-hmm. So I, I think to me that's just kind of clarity of thought as to how you're going to use your resources to kind of compete. It doesn't mean that they are, that sh- that competition should be illegal, and I don't really think it harms them from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the more I talk to you today, it seems like really Microsoft's going to make the best arguments they can, no matter what question they're asked. You don't want to give an inch anywhere, right? In a, in a, in a legal debate, but if it really all came down to the arguments that of the cloud thing, which was probably just a poor argument to make, right? That, that's what this all really came down to and why it's gone through. Yeah. I think the cloud was a weak uh, hook to hang your hat on for the regulators, but it wound up being the only one that they had left, really. Mm. Because nobody really believed the console math after the CMA lost their their math stuff and had to amend theirs. And Microsoft was adamant about saying, do you have any idea how much money Call of Duty makes on PlayStation? It would be silly for us to take it away. Uh, and there was really never a good counter from the regulators on that. And in fact, a number of worldwide regulators said, yeah, it doesn't make any sense for them to pull it. So they're not likely to pull it. The, the secondary question, even on that, which the regulators never even really got to, was, okay, let's say they do pull Call of Duty. Is that really something that's going to scrub Sony and Nintendo off the face of the earth? Uh, and I was never really satisfied with that answer, right? That there would be such a deleterious effect on the gaming industry if Call of Duty wasn't on PlayStation, that Sony would just bow out. And so what was interesting to me about this whole story was when Sony posted documents and answered questions to regulators that said that, yes, if we don't get Call of Duty, we don't think we can make our model work and we'll bow out. That never really rang true to me, but you Mm -hmm. could tell that regulators were looking for those hooks to hang their hats on. And they did take up some of those kind of Sony lances to go joust with Microsoft. And it didn't work out well for them in U.S. federal court. And it didn't really work out well with them for them with the CMA. It's unclear how that would have ended because there was an appeals tribunal process that actually kind of got ended early because the CMA and Microsoft decided to go back to the negotiating table, which is how we wound up with the closing this past week. This piece of content is brought to you by Wondershare Recoverit. Wondershare Recoverit is a professional data recovery tool with 35 patents that can completely recover deleted and lost files, videos, and photos from any disaster. It's an all-scenario data recovery tool that allows you to recover data from a variety of data loss scenarios, such as accidental deletion, uh, formatting, device corruption, virus attack, or any other unknown error code. It is very easy to use and supports one-click recovery of videos and picture files, and the of unplayable videos as well which let me tell you there have been broken silicon recordings in the past where only a part of a guest video was corrupted but it prevented me from watching more than like a minute of the video and in the past i had to actually jump through a few hoops to find a backup cloud recording and if that wouldn't have worked i would have been in a lot of trouble 
I had Rundershare recover it at the time, that could have just fixed the file and I wouldn't have been in any trouble. Get the link below and try Wondershare Recover It for free. Clicking on this link below supports Moore's Law is Dead, and it helps you try a great data recovery tool for free as well. Support the channel and support your ability to recover your precious data with Wondershare Recover It today. So, legal arguments aside, if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to just ask your non-legal opinion on this, because a major part of that video analysis I did of the leaked documents, like, there are really two main things that I thought were crazy. Number one, they had presentations, projections, discussions a, a year and a half ago that said, we need to be here by this date and then here by this date in subscriber count. And a year and a half has passed and they're, they're not just below it. They may have lost subscribers since then. And in fact, in the second part of my video, I looked at if Starfield has likely boosted subscribership much. And from what I can tell, no. And, and and I'm thinking to myself, so they say we need to be here. They're not. And their entire argument is having all of this content to get people to subscribe to Game Pass. It doesn't seem like Starfield has. Is there even possibly a bigger game than Starfield to test if having big titles would get people to subscribe? Because if that won't, what will? And I, I can't help but wonder what your opinion is on the data suggesting that maybe they've kind of saturated the market of what they can get to already and how you think that will affect their future. Because he says, if we don't get to like, it was a crazy number. It was like, we need to be as big as Netflix, you know, by like 2029 or something. And if we're not, we can't be profitable Starfield hasn't seemed to move the needle, and I have to just go, well, then will anything? I mean, I wonder what you think about that. Well, I think my feeling is that one game, it could have been Spider-Man, it could have been Starfield, it could have been uh, Grand Theft Auto 6. I don't think one game is really going to move a monthly subscription needle too much. I think what they have to hit is a cadence, mm -hmm. right? And I think, I think Phil Spencer realizes that. There was another correspondence in those leaked documents that really talk about them screwing up the cadence last year in particular yeah, and how that was a problem. So I think if you get Starfield or its equivalent on a quarterly basis or what have you, I think you have a different product that you're selling than what they're currently selling and have sold for the last couple of years. So I think that's the hope. You know, business analysis is a lot of future projection. And so I think that's probably the hope at Xbox. And it's, it was my hope as a gamer for this kind of investment to succeed because I don't want to see all these companies, these tech companies with cash on hand, look at an investment in gaming of $100 billion and have it explode in Microsoft's face. That's not great for long-term investment in the gaming industry. So do I think Starfield it moved the needle? I don't know. I can't tell you from here, from on the outside looking in. But... I suspect what they really need to hit is kind of a, oh my God, Game Pass has another banger this week, right? So that you, you're you not even thinking about your subscription. Netflix, when it was really humming, was releasing things that were hitting the zeitgeist. And people were talking about them very often. And Netflix has, has its own saturation issues now, so. Mm -hmm. Right, but my concern is, you know, and, and why I, I really raised an eyebrow, because like if Microsoft said, if in their leaked documents, they were like, hey, if we hit, 40 million subs by 2030, we're, we're golden. I would go, oh, well, then I think they can probably do that pretty comfortably. But if you think about it, like there, it costs a lot of money to stream games and to provide games. And games cost billions of dollars to make now, some of them. So at a certain point, it's like, I looked this up. 
Spotify, it's like hundreds of millions, like three, 400 million. I don't know. Like streaming a, 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 a song is like five megabytes and people want to re-listen to tons of music over and over. This is perfect for streaming. It doesn't cost a lot to, uh, to stream it because there's not as much data and people do repetitively listen to the same thing and want more of it. All right, but then the, a tier below that, there's movies. You know, that is something where, you know, you're talking about hundreds of megabytes to a gigabytes of data. So by 2023 standards, it's not that much data, but it's a lot more than music. And the good news, though, for streaming movies and TV is that people don't tend to rewatch them a lot. So you need a lot of new stuff. So this lends itself to streaming. All right. So Netflix is at like 200 million. Spotify's at like 300 something million. All right. So they say they need to get to 100 million to be profitable or, or, or above that. They're getting to Netflix numbers, but they have to send hundreds of gigabytes of data for some of this, these games. How can that be profitable? And why would you expect to get to the success of streaming music? Because gaming is not as widespread, right? Not as many people play hundreds of, everyone listens to hundreds of songs a month. Some people watch dozens of shows a month. I don't know anyone who plays over a dozen games a month. I, I'm just curious of your opinion on that as well. I know this isn't a legal question, but like you kind of see my argument. Is this fundamentally a business model that is just a different type of product that to get to, it'd be like saying Netflix can't be successful unless it's as successful as Spotify. Well, then it will never be successful because Spotify's product is cheaper to stream and it's easier to stream. So of course they have more subs. No, I mean, I think that that's a fair point. The only caution I would give is that the correspondences we saw, the, the presentations that we saw were in connection with selling the Microsoft board on the acquisition and moving forward with both Bethesda and Activision. So to some extent, it's to the advantage of management of Microsoft to say, well, we really need to get those numbers smoking in order to make this work. And that's not actually the, the financial analysis that might go into the accounting, mm -hmm. right? So I always try to look at what I'm, I'm seeing in terms of whether it's an article or an email or a presentation by what was the motivation of the person who made it? What were they trying to accomplish? And at that point in time, Phil Spencer's trying to get them to write a big old check and to make it seem like that check is necessary to make this whole thing work. So I don't mm -hmm. know whether things need to be quite that rosy in order for Microsoft to be happy with Game Pass. Um, but if it is, yeah, I think there's, there's overall problems with the approach. But that, that comes with the territory of deciding that we're not going to do what video gaming has done realistically for the entire modern era. We're going to try to do something different and try to make sure it works. They have difficult math across the board, right? Because they're not... They're not even focused on selling Xboxes necessarily. Mm -hmm. They're selling Game Passes. No, that came out too, that they told themselves we have to move past Xbox or we can't hit those numbers. Like it would never be possible unless we were on tablets and stuff too. Yeah, they want Game Pass uh, on TVs and toasters and everything. So, I mean, I don't know whether it'll work out. Again, I'm an optimist by nature. I want it to work out because I want investments to succeed. I want there to be those competitive investments. I want Sony and Nintendo to be challenged. I want Microsoft mm -hmm. to be challenged. It's not, it's not one or the other. I think we get the best games when all of them are, are trying to win our consumer dollars the hardest. Yeah, I suppose that'd be my greatest fear, though, is um, if I were to be a pessimist for a second, is if it does all blow up in their face, I can't imagine how, and, and if deep, and especially if there's people there that are like, well, unless we do all of this stuff, it can't be successful, and then it isn't. Like, is this actually going to be the the end of competition for a while if these studios don't turn out the games because 
where are, I mean, I don't know, where's the games, man? Like, where are these games? It doesn't seem like being part of one umbrella makes you more likely to push games out faster. And I can't think of anything that would be worse for the industry than if it was all or nothing and it became nothing because, I don't know, then it's just this industry will be steamrolled by Sony and Nintendo. Although I suspect that Steam would jump in in a way that people are underestimating if they saw an opening. I will say that. Microsoft could fail, but the developers and the talent there, they don't, they don't die. They're not shot in an alley because Microsoft <laughs> goes under. No, they'll form new studios. You'd there would just be a find, tumultuous year. Creativity, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Florida Man writes in and he says, given Microsoft's struggle with the Activision Blizzard deal before it finally went through, how are the different companies feeling about more acquisitions? Should we be expecting more attempts to grab studios? I think all of the companies are probably still opportunistically looking at the value of various companies and whether or not they want to invest in them. Microsoft's in a unique space because they have so much cash, not from video gaming, but from everything else that they do. Sony and Nintendo don't have the same kind of economic positioning mm-hmm. to just go willy-nilly and buy whoever they like. And so you see Sony's strategy is trying to gobble up companies that they're already affiliated with or that are working on Sony products. Uh, but I don't know whether Microsoft will be looking specifically to acquire companies after all this. One of the reasons is the regulatory issues that we've talked about. But one of the reasons is Microsoft gaming has effectively doubled in size over the last five years. Mm -hmm. And just kind of digesting that kind of acquisition and making sure the organizational infrastructure is set up properly to be efficient about making games is something that's going to take a little bit of time to get set up. And Mm -hmm. so generally speaking, you don't dive right back in and look for 10,000 more employees when you're trying to incorporate the current new 10,000 employees into your infrastructure. Not guaranteed that they won't, because I think Microsoft Mm -hmm. is opportunistic. If they see something that they feel is undervalued and that their cash can go by, I think they do it. I think Activision, they thought, was undervalued when they got hit by all the lawsuits from California and the EEOC, and that's why this transaction happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's, if I were in the boardroom at Microsoft, I would make the argument, you know, I think right now what we got to do is prove that we can merge all of these studios and thousands of people together coherently and actually churn out games at the clip we've just discussed they need to get it to before we consider adding anymore now look if there's an undervalued indie studio that we think's got way more promise than people realize then you know like actually a funny example would probably be gorilla for sony like everyone made fun of like kill zone not being a halo killer but now they just make horizon and all of the tech for sony behind the scenes i mean that was probably just an, an insane bargain. So I'm sure Microsoft will be looking at little studios and going, someday they're going to be huge. But I, I'm guessing that's what you're saying, right? That at least Microsoft, maybe other people are different, but at least Microsoft at this point probably just wants to turn what they have into a well-oiled machine before yeah. I mean, they, adding they more weight to no the car. a ridiculous deal. But uh, outside of that dropping from the sky, I think they're probably out of the acquisition business for a little bit at least right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida man writes in again, he says, how much legal trouble with other companies is Microsoft in for leaking their entire case file? Should Microsoft be expecting lawsuits from whom, for what, potentially for how much? So, and and how did this get leaked? Like they just accidentally uploaded it to everyone or I actually don't know that. You have to make court filings, right? And they say they had a series of documents that related to the Bethesda acquisition. That's why you saw the Bethesda ZeniMax releases specifically itemized in those documents. And Usually what you do is you give a 
non-public version to the court and you give a public redacted version that they can put on their website to the court. I don't know exactly what technical buttons weren't hit properly on this, but the non-public version went public and everybody reported on it. That's, that's what happened. Microsoft filed the documents and those documents went public with information that Microsoft wouldn't have wanted out there. In answer to the question about the lawsuit, for the most part, the information that was disclosed was Microsoft's, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there are some partnerships. There are some things with respect to tech that undoubtedly they wouldn't have liked to get out there specifically because Sony now knows what they were aiming at at least a couple of years ago. But that's mostly harming Microsoft. Whenever we talk about litigation and lawsuits, we got to think about damages. We got to think about who's hurt because all that the law can really do is give you redress, can make somebody write a check. Uh, and so Microsoft primarily hurt itself, so I don't see mm-hmm. a lot of third-party exposure there. Yeah, uh, there's I, no, I can't there's pretend no to have seen every money. document. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I, you know, as someone who helps with Moore's Law is dead, I think he said he has now, and he's writing an article after reading every single document. And actually, hopefully, that will come out within a week on the uh, Moore's Law is dead website. I'm pretty excited to look at his analysis uh, myself. But yeah, this situation's very different from like the epic what was it, Apple thing, right? Where like things leaked that royally pissed off Sony and other people. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. That was in particular that Epic leaked out that they had to pay a, essentially a a fee to Sony for Fortnite dollars that were not reflected in Fortnite playtime on Sony's platform. And Sony didn't like that. It was public knowledge that they were requiring those fees to be paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's at least an argument there. Again, I don't know that Sony was damaged. You'd have to argue a kind of reputational damage there. Uh, in a lawsuit, and mostly that doesn't make sense. You don't see Sony suing Epic mm-hmm. right now. In fact, you saw Sony invest more in Epic after that. Uh, but I think you really have to think about who's hurt when you talk about any of these issues. And I don't recall seeing anything in the Microsoft documents that would suggest a third party was hurt. Now, there's always the possibility that confidentiality was breached on some level, right? You have non-disclosure agreements and things that you agree to with people. But usually that's going to require a certain amount of intentionality uh, and not accident, and is going to have an exception for court filings. Mostly, mm-hmm. you'd have to actually read the contracts to look at those. So, I guess one of the final like questions here I have with regards to this subject: uh, Big Boss sixty nine writes in, "Wow, fan of Metal Gear Solid and memeable numbers." Uh, with Microsoft's recent inflation adjusting, uh, he puts it in quotes of inflation adjusting of Activision games on Steam, presumably pushing gamers to purchase on the MS Store or Game Pass, and already see monopolistic practices unfolding. Do you think that allowing this merger to go through is detrimental to the options gamers have? Well, we, we've kind of already answered that. I, I kind of wanted to, because I didn't notice this until this reader mail was submitted. Uh, I just bring up that I'll, it's not in the US. It seems like it's in a couple other countries outside of the US where they've right after the deal closed, started raising prices on Activision games on other storefronts. I'm just kind of curious how, because there were a lot of, there were a decent amount of concessions given to get this through. Like Microsoft agreed to give free licenses to stream their games in the cloud for the EU. Microsoft agreed for Ubisoft to stream their stuff in the UK. The FTC, they said they'll allow, promise 10 years of Call of Duty on Sony and Nintendo consoles. I'm curious, how how ironclad do you think that is? Do you think Microsoft can maybe find a way to undo that and de facto have Call of Duty exclusive to like Microsoft storefronts? Uh, and actually, just saying this now, I'm like, why 10 years? Why not five? Why not 20? Like, why do you think 10 years was the agreement? So 10 years is a really long time in video gaming and technology. And so I think they were looking to establish agreements that were a really long time. 
So they entered into the Nintendo agreements and some of the other cloud service agreements also on that 10-year basis in kind of the interim period between when everything was getting a lot of noise from the regulators and when things finally got through. So the FTC wasn't inclined to accept those 10-year deals as important, either with Sony or Nintendo or anybody else. And so Microsoft was essentially trying to act as a good party that the regulators or that the courts would not think are unclean hands or acting in a nefarious or evil capacity. That's Microsoft's entire kind of political approach to this regulatory environment was to try to be the good guys, to go out mm-hmm. there with press releases talking about how we're going to be neutral in terms of labor agreements and things like that to get the CWA on their side, the union. And then they would go out with a 10-year deal to Nintendo to establish that they're not trying to hold Call of Duty. And then they tried to do the same kind of deal with Sony that Sony rejected. And mm-hmm. when the court kind of analyzed all that they said well sony's just rejecting this in order to be able to bring these types of arguments that they're going to be harmed that's not a very legitimate or sincere Mm -hmm. sounding position for them to take Uh, and so i think xbox is unlikely to go for anything that would look askance to the regulators from everything that they've talked about as part of this process so i don't think they're likely to put call of duty only on microsoft uh Mm -hmm. or avoid any of the other agreements that they've entered into that would look bad, and it would look bad for their entire company for anything else they're trying to do. Microsoft, as a global multinational tech company, is always dealing with regulators on one question or another. Right? The EU is currently looking at them from a cloud infrastructure standpoint, not gaming, but just actual servers and, and, and running cloud infrastructure uh, in their jurisdiction. So Microsoft is trying and has been trying to essentially be that white knight good guy actor on all these questions, and they're not likely to do anything weird with Call of Duty that would raise the ire of these various jurisdictions. I wouldn't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing I could think of is uh, if they <laughs> made like Treyarch and Infinity Ward start making not Call of Duty, but it's basically Call of Duty with a different name. But then that'd be such an idiotic move financially, right? You know, that I, I don't really see that happening there. Um, I guess, you know, it's just funny just saying this out loud. It's funny how like I I personally think there will be more competition if Sony and Microsoft don't try to buy everything up, you know. But at the same time, it's funny how I sit here and Sony's arguments basically are just whining we don't like this, if we're being honest. It doesn't really feel like to me this whole time, even if I don't like any of these companies getting much bigger than they are. Their arguments, I mean. Sony's argument was just, we don't like it, right? I mean, it wasn't a very good argument. No, I don't think it was. And I think it, it lacked sincerity, even in the documentation. Yeah. They were they were trying to take advantage of a regulatory infrastructure that clearly really didn't know the gaming industry so terribly mm. well. You can tell in their first documents with like the CMA and the FTC that as they describe things, and one of the interesting things about their original documents is that the FTC has to take Nintendo out of the video game market in order to make their case because the most obvious response to uh, Sony saying you can't survive in the video game industry without Call of Duty is Nintendo sitting there without yeah. Call of Duty. Uh, and so the FTC said, well, Nintendo's not really a part of the hardware market that we're going to talk about. We're talking about high-end consoles. It's like, mm-hmm. well, okay, we can make artificial distinctions however we want, but I think when you go to the target, you're still going to be choosing between whether you want to buy Spider-Man or Mario wonder, you know? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, it didn't make a lot of sense. Sony took advantage of some of the kind of 
blank spots in understanding from the regulatory side of things. And I don't begrudge them that as a company. I kind of begrudge them that as a gamer and a person because I just don't think that it was useful bit of resources for the entire gaming industry to deal with this whole thing for two years. But from a from a business lawyer's perspective, I can understand Sony saying, well, okay, if they're going to allow us to make this argument, then we're going to make it as loud as we can. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's kind of like a, a a nasty divorce, right? It's like, on the one hand, can't you guys be nicer to each other here? On the other hand, they're trying to win a case and they're going to do every little thing they can. And once the gloves come off, they're just doing what they can to win a fight. That's what it is. And from that perspective, it's understandable what Sony's doing, even if it looks pretty silly to me, to be honest. Yeah, no, I mean, they were lowered in my esteem. I'm a, I've been a Sony PlayStation gamer and an Xbox gamer since both were released on the market. And I don't, I don't love Sony and my feelings towards them from having watched this whole thing up close for the last two years. But is what it is. They tried yeah. it and they didn't stop it. And now they got to deal with the aftermath. Hmm. Um. And they'll probably be fine. I mean, I don't I think. see. I don't see any. I don't. I don't think they're going to go out of business here. If they make games, people will buy them. They'll do fine. You know. Um. I think. Yeah. I think a lot of the emotions that people have online arguing about the end of the world stuff, both fundamentally over values, like how much you could remove Call of Duty from PlayStation. I think people need to understand that people will find games to play on their PlayStation <laughs> on the one hand. And that's both in a kind of defense of Microsoft's argument, but also a defense of the Sony side where you, I'm just saying the the nastiness fanboys throw at each other. Guys, Sony's not going to die now, okay? Like, you know, th- this was just both two companies fighting for what they wanted to get. They wanted to get their way. And I don't think either outcome is going to see either company fall apart, not even remotely close, you know? No, and I think we're in a good space, and hopefully we continue to be in a good space of competitive console gaming. Twenty twenty three has been a fantastic year for gaming, in my opinion, and so I'd I'd love to see it continue. Um, so I want to touch on this very briefly here. Um, I saw that Microsoft was just hit with a twenty nine billion dollar back taxes fine from the IRS. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but you know I I frequently see in the news you know intel or someone it's like a few million dollars in taxes when you're a company that's that large it sounds silly but this is where we're at with how big companies are a million dollars is is a rounding error sometimes in taxes now 29 billion's not (laughs) you know so what is this about does this seem like a typical thing or do you is there something else going on here worth paying attention to well i think when that news item came out the first thing that i think is that you get a number that big, it's not them trying to hide from a a tax form that you and I might get that it's just mm-hmm. like, oh, I owe $11,000, I'm not going to pay it, and now the IRS comes after me, what have you. $29 billion is a fundamental disagreement with the interpretation of some tax law or regulation. And mm-hmm. as it turns out in this case, it's because Microsoft is a multinational, and if you move profits out of the United States, as a for instance, and into a different lower tax jurisdiction, the IRS can sometimes disagree that that's legitimate movement, right? Mm -hmm. So a multinational company can go and they can charge their various subsidiaries for the use of their tech at the parent level, and they can move money around in accounting land from the United States to 
Puerto Rico or Ireland or somewhere else that might be more advantageous for the tax burden side of things. Mm -hmm. And what the argument appears to be here is that the IRS audited Microsoft and found that they had made a transfer pricing that the IRS doesn't agree was legitimate. Mm -hmm. Microsoft says it is legitimate, and that's a normal legal fight. Say, okay, no, we don't owe that money. IRS says you do. Probably this ends with a settlement that is not for that top line number. Yeah. Um, but over the course of a couple of years. So it's not great. You don't want to be on the hook for $30 billion if you can avoid it. But this is a kind of normal legal fight that doesn't really shock the conscience from my side of the view. Mm-hmm. Am I remembering correctly? Is this something the IRS has said recently they're going to be kind of looking at more closely? And I think a lot of countries have been saying they're kind of tired of people moving money outside of various jurisdictions for tax purposes, right? This is like a thing a lot of governments are starting to get annoyed about, right? Yes. You're seeing it a lot in in the UK and Ireland and the EU, um, especially where moving things around has been seen to take money out of the coffers of the countries that are actually supporting the companies. Mm -hmm. So some of it is going to be legitimate. Some of it is not. Uh, Microsoft says that they were fine. The IRS says they aren't. Probably the truth is somewhere in the middle. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of the EU, though, I want to touch on something here that I don't know how much depth there is to it, but it's, you know, we got a couple reader mails about it. So I thought it was worth touching on the antitrust lawsuit in the EU. I swear every six months I see the Intel antitrust lawsuit pop up again because this thing will not end. And QH Freddy writes and it says, maybe it's just my young age, but the Intel antitrust saga in the EU seems to have gone on forever. What do you think is the reason both sides are willing to drag it out so long when the market has clearly reset from the situation back then? And Intel should probably be focusing on its execution with new products at this point than fighting that one. You know, when I was in law school, they had a uh, they had a little idiot, idiomatic phrase that was the wheels of justice grind slowly, mm-hmm. but they grind exceedingly fine. They do their job, but it's a slow one. Law goes slowly. Uh, and so that's one of the problems that you have with technology in particular is that not only is the justice system here moving slowly, but the laws themselves to actually get made and enforced move slowly. So it takes a while for all of this stuff to work through. If I understand the stories correctly on the Intel side of things, what happened over the course of the last little while is that Intel won on the notion that their rebate practices mm-hmm. were not a violation of the antitrust laws. And so they actually got a much bigger top line number reduced. And and that's worthwhile to do if you're Intel. Uh, Mm -hmm. Looking at just from the outside, what their rebate policies were said to have done from a competitive standpoint, I tend to agree that that was overbroad as a penalty. Now, I'm not an EU lawyer, so Mm -hmm. they could have different rules on on things like that. But the, the rebates came off the books. That's what took a number of extra years. That's why it's a lower number right now. That doesn't mean Intel's going to accept the lower number. And there is value, as you can tell, whether you're following Intel or somebody else in the legal sphere, in just kind of appealing everything and saying, Mm -hmm. all right, prove it. Um, Because a dollar in your pocket is better than a dollar spent. And if you can spend a dollar 20 years from now, it's better still. Mm -hmm. Um, So you do see, I think, Intel and some of these other companies taking advantage of every bit of the legal system to to slow things down and to make sure that there's a final determination against them before they actually pay these things out. So is it taking a long time? Yes. But that's to be expected when you're talking about big, big numbers like $300 million or a billion. 
Right. Because like maybe Intel in in total will end up spending like millions of dollars in lawyers fees. Definitely. But that's a lot less than a billion. And it's kind of like, oh, well, they got us, but let's turn this into a loan that we have to pay off in 20 years and not a lump sum we have to get done with right now. Right. Like that's basically what it comes down to. Yeah. It's the time value of money. Right. And especially in an inflationary environment, Mm. kick it out, you kick it out as far as you can. And it's, it's worth less than it was when you were originally asked to pay it. But Mm -hmm. certainly I think the fact that Intel did win the reduction is suggestive of the fact that there were, there were merits in their initial kind of argument. This wasn't just a delay tactic from them. And so I, I don't, I don't find myself offended by them going and trying to pursue appeals to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benjamin Cannon writes in, he says, Intel is a very long and extensive antitrust history where they stalled the cases for as long as they can. So the judgment ultimately doesn't matter. How different would the tech industry look as a whole if Intel couldn't stall and appeal judgments for years? Well, I mean, on the one hand, this is the same kind of the flip side of what mm-hmm. I was just talking about, which is, if you assume that you couldn't appeal or mm-hmm. you couldn't go through this process, then they would have owed a billion pounds and probably unjustly so for the rebate issue that ultimately was determined to not be an antitrust violation. Similarly, if you think about it the same way with respect to like Microsoft and Activision, mm-hmm. when the CMA moved to block, if there was absolutely no avenue to stop that from happening, that wouldn't be great. We don't think right now that the Activision purchase is a violation of the antitrust laws. Not even the CMA thinks that. And if they had just kind of gone with their initial instinct there, that would be worse for everybody in terms of what was stopped from happening in the in the industry. So I'm inclined to enjoy the legal process. I'm a lawyer, so that's not <laughs> yeah. a surprise to anyone. But I think that it's a good thing that there are ways to say, hey, can we get another set of eyes on this and make sure that the regulators aren't going overboard on issue X, Y, or Z? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm generally inclined to think that that's okay. Um, certainly companies can take advantage of it, right? You see stories like that all the time where you, where you drown one of the regulators in paperwork or you just use every mechanism that you can in an unjust way. I think perhaps all the court systems of the world could do a better job policing kind of bad lawyering mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's frivolous and not really related to the merits. But like I said, with respect to the Intel uh, conflict here, the fact that they won such a big kind of concession and reduction in their initial bill suggests that they did have reasons to appeal initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it really comes down to we can only try to make it less imperfect, but it's never going to be a perfect system. But it's human beings all the way down. Yeah, and it's created by humans, so it can't be perfect by virtue. But you know, the alternative is a dictatorship, and yeah, things get done really fast but the worst thing is is that things get done <laughs> really fast sometimes without any thought put into it so it kind it kind of is what it is and anyone who would say the it's annoying how much they can drag this out it's like yes but the good guys have dragged things out before for good reasons so either everyone has these weapons they can use or nobody does right yes i mean it's it's all a kind of discussion of political systems and how the justice system should be organized. One of the things you see argued about right now is whether the CMA, after this whole Microsoft Activision mm-hmm. kerfuffle, should have a more stringent appeals process imposed upon it. And of course, the CMA says, no, we're fine. We're good. Uh, but some of the people in Britain are saying, no, this this could have gone really, really wrong. And our appeals system really didn't 
really didn't cover you guys going off and doing whatever you like. So maybe we should rethink our statutes on this front. And so Mm -hmm. you're constantly having legislatures and policy people looking at issues and trying to better reflect what the people in society want on these questions, but they're difficult questions. So pivoting to a different Intel discussion here, QH Freddy writes in yet again and says, do you think Intel is at risk of an investor class action lawsuit based on their public and investor facing statements about execution being so consistently out of line with the reality of what is going on in the company? And, you know, I sent an early draft to you. I know you don't follow this space as closely, of course, as like I do, but I've added more links in the description for this one. I just kind of outlined a couple of boilerplate examples here, which is, you know, Intel says Sapphire Rapids is going to come out like 2021, and then they announce actually it's 2022, and then I have an article showing it launches March of this year. And then Meteor Lake is another one where they're like, well, you know, it's supposed to come out like at the beginning of 2023 or maybe 2022, and then now it's launching December 14th, and from what I'm hearing, it it really won't have launched until January. And it seems fairly consistent. Half of the, I mean, again, Intel's Alchemist graphics cards. I mean, God, they were talking about those for so, I had pictures of them, I think two years, like a year or two, a year and a half before they even launched. And they said, it's going to come out quarter one. It didn't. Then they said, what well, was on shelves? We didn't say it's on, this my favorite thing ever. They said, it was on shelves. We didn't say it was for sale. <laughs> So it was being ready to be sold. And really, it didn't launch until the end of 2022. And it just goes on and on. And it seems so consistent to this day. You know, they announced Lunar Lake a couple of years ago or something. And now they're saying it'll be 2024. I'm told by the same people who warned me these other things wouldn't come out on time that Lunar Lake's effectively going to be 2025. It seems consistent. Everything is like a year behind or at least half a year behind when they say it's going to come out. And at what point does an investor... Do you think they're, if at least the way I'm painting this is true, that an investor eventually is going to raise their hands and maybe start asking legal questions? It's certainly possible. I mean, the one interesting thing about, as you described it to me, is that the more consistent you are on this, Mm. the less likely you are to actually face a legal challenge, which might sound uh, unintuitive, but to the extent that a reasonable investor should expect that we're probably going to be off by six months to a year, then you've basically protected yourself just on the notion that that's how we operate, especially if that's how the industry operates in general. I don't know whether other folks Mm. in this space also miss their dates pretty regularly, but basically the question is, are you intentionally lying? If they aren't intentionally lying, then that's a problem for an investor lawsuit. And then if they're negligent about this, then if, if the industry is operating in that way and a reasonable investor should expect that that's going to be a little bit after when we say we think we're going to release something, then they're going to be protected mostly because they aren't they aren't committing fraud on the market, right? An investor should know that it's going to be a little bit later. That doesn't work in every case. And certainly if you had evidence that they were deliberately misleading, that would be a problem in this space. But outside of that, I suspect it's more trouble than it's worth from an investor standpoint to try to go mm. maybe even organize a class action. And then again, as we talked about earlier in this video, what are my damages? How was I damaged? You have to essentially say, okay, well, the price was too high when I bought it because if I had known and if the market had known that this was actually going to be a year out or two years out, that price value of the company would have been lower. I was damaged by that, but that's a difficult case to make, right? You have to make all these kind of counterfactual cases as to what things would have looked like in a different universe. Well, you know, this is an industry where delays happen, you know, but I wouldn't, 
say that it's like the video game software industry where it seems pretty consistent every game gets delayed at this point because it's hard to predict when they'll really be done. Bugs are unknown unknowns sometimes. In this case, though, the way AMD operates is they tend to announce things one to two years before they come out, and they always say like 2025 or 2025, 2025 slash 2026 and then they always do do it sometimes it's early in the year sometimes it's at the end of the year but if they say it's in a time frame it i think there's very few examples i think zen 4 may have been one where it isn't out on time and and usually if they miss their announced date it was a date like where lisa sue the ceo said something like in an investor call we should have it ready by 2021 or 2022 it's not like on a roadmap that they showed that's in writing right and then nvidia they just don't tend to announce things honestly like we know blackwell is going to come out late next year they've announced that the ai version of it will um but they tend to not really announce new gaming generations way far in advance it just typically is like a two months before it comes out they're like by the way this is about to launch (laughs) so i actually don't think nvidia and amd operate in the same way intel does where i mean i'm really not kidding you they they announced meteor lake like three or four years before it came out and they have a tendency to announce things way far in advance And, and i do personally think it's because AMD is showing off all this impressive stuff. They want to be showing off impressive stuff, but it's really not going to be ready on time. So they're announcing things long before they're ready. So it looks like they have comparable technology. And then they just always seem to come out later than expected. Yeah. And I think especially when you talk about things that are really announced way early, you have that kind of fuzziness that you can apply to a reasonable investor standard. The further out we're projecting, the less mm-hmm. likely it is that we're exactly on target, right? You're, we're, we're too high in the air. It's a little bit hard to see exactly where we're going to land. Uh, and of course, from a legal perspective, we skip over it when we read these documents usually, but there are disclaimers about forward-looking statements in anything that any of these mm-hmm. companies yeah. say, which basically says human beings can't predict the future. We're going to do our best to tell you what we think, but absent a lie, you still have an issue at proving your case if you're going to if you're going to ask for damages. Right. So unless and unless there was like a very obvious case and like someone who wanted to sue them like knew there were emails that would prove like the CEO saying we're going to lie. <laughs> like unless they think those are there. Yeah, then, the chief engineer sending an email exact before the investor call saying we're definitely not going to hit until 2027 and the CEO mm-hmm. saying yeah, I know and then going and saying the opposite to the investors. Like it would take confidence that that's a thing because otherwise it's just well intel's not really helping themselves by being unreliable so you could argue they're already hurting themselves and unless it's crazy mustache twirling it's not like they're it's not like this is like a situation where they are incentivized to make themselves look stupid right so they're already kind of punishing themselves if they miss a date right no from the law's perspective the, the notion would be that the market is already incorporating this concept that they're right. late all the time and they're fuzzy with their dates into the market price. Like mm. that's that's how the the fraud on the market standard works is that the assumption is if everybody can see this kind of pattern, then that's being built into the market price by reasonable investors. Mm-hmm. This piece of content is brought to you by the Minis Forum HX77G. It includes 
an unhindered version of the 7735HS and 6600M, meaning that the APU boosts to 54 watts and the 6600M boosts past 2.4 gigahertz, basically giving you a desktop ARC 6600 that uses less energy. And you can also equip it with up to 64 gigabytes of DDR5 and terabytes of Gen 4 PCIe storage. And I'm gonna be honest, actually, this thing impressed me. My girlfriend has been using a smaller APU-only mini spore room system since spring this year. And once again this year, I surprised her with an early Christmas present that wasn't that much bigger than her old little PC. But yeah, that 6600M, it boosted its performance over the Rembrandt APU more than I expected it to. And honestly, this Navi 23 GPU had no issues running Hogwarts Legacy at almost all ultra settings locked at 60 frames at her full resolution, which is 2520 by 1680. It's running locked 60 above 1440p Ultra Hogwarts. This thing can do it. And even Metro Exodus worked fine. I could get it running above 1440p again at high settings. That's a fully ray traced game. Uh, no, you're not gonna be doing 4K 120 uh, unless it's an older game, nor will you easily be doing 1440p 240. But 1080p was a complete joke with this little system, even at 144 hertz. And at the native resolution of 1680p, 60 hertz wasn't an issue with almost all games running at maxed out settings. And this thing was actually whisper quiet as well, consuming less energy than a PS5 while not making almost any noise. And look, if you wanted more RAM or storage, it's easy to open up and add it yourself. And it comes at a pretty attractive price. Support Moore's Law is Dead by clicking on that link below. Just clicking on the link below to the Minis Forum website to look at the product helps this channel a ton. But if you do want it, get it through that link and make sure they know that I sent you. I'd appreciate it. And I think a lot of people would appreciate this project. I legitimately mean it. It impressed me. Check out the Minis Forum HX77G today. All right, so I want to pivot here to one of the final like main subjects that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's that NVIDIA's was rated by the FCA, French authorities, last month. Uh, how would you summarize the reason for this happening? Because I actually looked around again before we started recording, and I, I personally don't see that many specifics out there. It's just, it's like, the FCA is like, hey, we think NVIDIA may be doing anti-competitive practices because everyone has to use their stuff. But that's basically all they've said, right? And then they just stormed in and took a bunch of documents from NVIDIA in France, right? Yeah, I didn't see any indication of what would be the impetus behind that particular search either. Certainly, NVIDIA has this position, especially in 2023 with all the AI stuff taking off, mm -hmm. where these regulators all think, uh-oh, that might be a choke point for this entire new sector of the industry. Uh, and it doesn't surprise that some regulator or another would be interested in what, if any, deals NVIDIA might have with providers of software to AI companies and things like that. But I don't know exactly what they were looking for. People I, I know have said, you know, were they trying to get specific equipment out of that office or things like that? It seems more likely that it was a books and records type of raid. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're looking for emails, you're looking for accounting, you're looking for essentially some kind of silver bullet that says, if you're the regulator that NVIDIA has been trying to restrict access to potential competitors or to others in a related field like AI or even video games. Mm -hmm. I think it's likely that that's what they were looking for, but I don't know that we can know whether or not they found anything on that.
Yeah, and I even saw that some suggestion that it is very likely NVIDIA countersues the judge and the regulators there and argues this was an entirely unwarranted raid is what I saw a couple people suggest. Doesn't seem like it's something that they've announced, but it's like there, at least I saw in a couple articles a lot of suggestions that perhaps a regulator saw NVIDIA's market dominance and said, let's go for them. And, I, and you know, tell me if I'm, you know, maybe misread something, but maybe didn't think about why they may be in that position. Because, you know, I, I, I wonder if this raid would have happened in a year from now. We have to see. But fact is, NVIDIA just launched their Hopper products, I, this is my opinion, at the right time. And no one else has launched their stuff yet, but AMD is about to launch it. And I wonder if it'll look like the same situation once literally anyone else is selling something to compete with it. Well, I mean, certainly from my perspective, I, ho- I hope it's not just that, right? You don't want a regulator to just say, hey, that's a big company. They probably got some stuff in their trash, mm-hmm. um, but it's a possibility. Now, you said counter sue. I don't think generally speaking, companies I don't know if have that's the right word, success. you know, they don't have a lot of success suing sovereigns, which is what a regulator for a country is. Uh, and so you might get public relations type talk. You might get, hey, this is this is unwarranted. This is. Is a bad use of your resources, et cetera. You saw Activision re- respond to the EEOC mm-hmm. lawsuit with similar language. Uh, but I think right now, all we can look at from the outside is that there certainly wasn't any kind of complaint document that was immediately forthcoming after the raid. Mm-hmm. So if I'm NVIDIA, I think probably I'm thinking things are probably going to be okay. Right. But you never know. And that really surprised me too, by the way. I didn't see any statement. This is what we're looking for. What what I saw, and and, you know, again, maybe I missed something, was them go, you have a lot of market share. We're rating you. I I didn't see them say anything specific. And I thought that was really weird. Yeah, well, I I think, again, we talked a little bit about cloud infrastructure that Mm. France knows the EU is looking at that closely. They know the UK is looking at that closely. It wouldn't surprise me if the French regulators thought there was something up with respect to cloud infrastructure and NVIDIA and NVIDIA cards of some mm-hmm. kind. But I'm just guessing there, right? It's all speculative. I didn't see any news items that said exactly what they were looking for either. Um, QH Freddy writes in again. And he says, I don't know how familiar you are with EU competition law, but given how NVIDIA seems to have a stranglehold on its AIB partners, do you think they could be at risk of having relations with those and other downstream OEMs scrutinized on grounds of them being an abuse by, and he's quoting here, an abuse by an undertaking with a dominant position under Article 102 TFEU, for example, unfair trading practices? Do you think similar grounds could be raised in the US? And I think, um, I think another Captain Hector asked a similar question as well, which is basically to say, at what point are NVIDIA's add-in board partners or AIBs not really partners so much as people NVIDIA is just kind of controlling and corralling and forcing to do their bidding? And I'm, I'm guessing it's something you're not that familiar with, but you know how it typically would work in the past is AMD or NVIDIA or Intel or Voodoo graphics in the day uh, would say, here's our general design. You know, this is how you make the, you know, this is the, obviously you have to get the silicon die from us. We designed it and we're ordering it for T- from TSMC. But there's this, here's the board kit, here's the general layout and the RAM. You can order the kits from us or you can order just the silicon from us, buy your own RAM, design your own boards to power it and make your own versions. And, you know, 
throughout the years, there were some pretty interesting things. Like some people would have half the RAM, double the RAM in case you want to pay extra for that. There were some enterprising, like Asus did this a lot. Like they would have a double graphics card. So they put two of the graphics cards on one board then have them fire off frames back and forth and call it a single one that had its own benefits and a lot of downsides. But you have people trying a lot of weird stuff. And now NVIDIA basically doesn't allow any of that. And they own like, you know, I'd say at least 75% of the market, depending on which statistics you believe. Some would say 85%. Um, and they just kind of tell them exactly what to do. You can't do anything. You have to do it when we tell you to. And you have to accept whatever price we tell you to pay for our kits. And this basically put EVGA out of business. And I've heard there's something going on with another one of their partners as well that could lead to a similar outcome as EVGA. So, I mean, I assume it's technically all legal and it's just deal with it. NVIDIA is the king. but is it? Is there some grounds where they go, well, they've kind of just forced us all to play ball to a degree that they just control a dozen companies that they used to not control? Well, as you've probably noted already just in our conversations, antitrust is not usually as easy as that practice is illegal and that practice is legal. So as described by you just now, I think anytime you involve another party, you've got two parties that are controlling some aspect of the relationship that you're more likely to run into antitrust trouble than if it's just one entity doing something, right? Just Microsoft doing something is different than Google requiring certain things of Samsung in order to make money using their uh, search engine Mm. or what have you. So, I mean, like anytime you incorporate another party and you control them, I think you're a little bit more susceptible to antitrust regulation than you otherwise are. So as you describe it, I think that there's a possibility from an American standpoint, that you could get into trouble on some of the same grounds that we see the FTC pursuing Amazon on right now after their recent lawsuit, which is this notion of essentially controlling third parties' abilities to get feature sets or benefits from us, the king, could potentially be an illegal restraint of trade. Now, we don't know how that's ultimately going to wind up in the court system because it was just filed recently, and there's some question as to whether it'll be successful, but On that same kind of basis, I could see something like what you just described with NVIDIA controlling its third-party partners as being potentially problematic since they have such a big market share. And in the EU, again, I'm not an EU attorney, I'm not an EU lawyer, I'm not licensed to practice in the EU, but you look at 102, that's the same one that was used against Intel, and you have that abuse of a dominant market position. And it certainly rings to me of the kinds of things I'd be looking for for a U.S. set of facts to be potentially problematic in antitrust law. I can't speak to the precedent and the court decisions in the EU on interpreting 102, mm-hmm. but I think overall, the questioner's head is in the right place for the kind of thing that could be a problem. Yeah, I've never thought of it from that perspective. I, to be honest, I was kind of expecting you to say, eh, there's not really much you can do. I never thought of it from the point of view of it's it's kind of comparable, yeah, to like how Microsoft controls basically a software monopoly for the operating system for x86 and because of that you have two regulators watching microsoft and saying hey you can't force people to use bing right it's interesting i guess yeah you can make kind of a similar argument that that's what nvidia is doing with their partners i guess right and we see we see that kind of investigation with as i've said cloud infrastructure we also see it in the app space with the os's and whether or not it's okay for Apple to put ads in the search results from their Mm -hmm. app store and things like that. And so I think they're all of a piece, right? All the regulators are looking at big tech and technology practices with a new lens and new eyes 
And so if I'm NVIDIA doing the things that you just described, that's the kind of thing that I think regulators are looking at. Is mm-hmm. that ultimately a winner in their court systems in whatever jurisdiction we're talking about? I don't think we have enough legal decisions on the books right now to know one way or the other, but it is the kind of thing that I think could wind up in court. Sure. Yeah. I would suspect that they're maybe not in a dominant enough position, right? Because Intel's making, arguably, I would argue they're failing to make graphics cards, but you know, I don't know. There's one physically here. I mean, they technically exist right now. And just because they only hold one person, they don't even hold 1%, like basically none of the market does not mean that they couldn't try harder. Like NVIDIA would just say, well, yeah, we're good at making graphics cards. But certainly, Asus, if you want to make more Intel graphics cards and you like how they do things, go for it. You know, and the same with AMD probably controls enough of the market, too, where it doesn't feel quite like a monopoly, especially because they own all of the consoles. But it's like, well, then work with AMD more. But I guess I don't know what percent of the market NVIDIA would have to own for regulators to go. doesn't matter. You own so much that... That's a very underhanded recommendation to your partners that we know is not can never be in good faith. Right. And that's going to come down to precedent on how dominant market position is interpreted in the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, I In America, I think you have an absolutely legitimate argument to say, look, it's a dynamic industry. You can't just take a snapshot of, a, of an 88 or a 93 or whatever yeah. because anybody can come in. It's not that difficult. We have all this volatility. That's one of the things that I really thought was a harm to the FTC's argument with respect to video gaming, because even without Activision, Activision itself was an offshoot company that started from developers that just wanted to make their own company. That's the way the video game industry operates. It's not a capital-intensive industry. You basically need developers and bodies and laptops. You don't need you know manufacturing and ball bearings and giant cargo ships. Uh, and so it tends to be very volatile and very fluid and responsive to market conditions in a way that I don't think... Some of the regulators were really kind of taking into account when they were looking at the Microsoft Activision transaction. So to your point, to the extent there are entrants that could come in if they were so inclined, and NVIDIA can point to those, they might not have the dominant market position that just a snapshot percentage could show. But overall, somebody that has market control and is Mm -hmm. requiring third parties to do things in order to be its best buddy... Is like, the kind of thing EVGA that, said that they could have never sold some of these cards at a profit and that NVIDIA and they threatened NVIDIA. Well, unless you help us write off some of this oversupply that we overproduced during this, the uh, pandemic, if you don't help us get rid of this from our books. We're not going to buy your next generation. I think NVIDIA thought they were bluffing. They're like, you have to. And then EVGA said, we won't. We'll just go out of business. We'd rather go out of business than you know, do this. And I think, yeah, I think a regulator maybe right could look at that and go, you forced this company out of business, right? Right. And then you have to tell a story as to why that was beneficial to NVIDIA and, and go through the various laws that could apply to that specific situation, which is a very lawyerly answer of, it depends on a whole host of things, but I don't think it's something that could just be laughed off as not applicable at all. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, so really the final main NVIDIA... Uh, subject I have here for today, as you would expect, comes from QH Freddy, who says, do you think export controls on NVIDIA hardware can really limit the amount of GPUs or more generally AI tech going into China? Will they not just find alternative routes into China? And actually, I believe he asked this question uh, or submitted it, I should say, before like a day ago, more export controls were put on NVIDIA's. I think it was like A800 and some of their new products that they designed for the Chinese market. The U.S. came in and said, nope, not selling that to China. 
I'm just curious, you know, how much do you think this really does limit NVIDIA's ability to sell these to China? Because I've, I've talked to people behind the scenes and they're like, if you go to the Chinese version of eBay or even eBay in China, you can find <laughs> NVIDIA AI cards there. So someone's getting them somehow. And I've talked to people like in Vietnam and they're like, yeah, they'll just make a gaming PC, put a $30,000 Hopper GPU in there instead of a graphics card. People at the border aren't going to tell the difference, or maybe they will, and they don't care because it's going into China and they want to let it in. And then they'll just say, yep, this is a gaming PC, goes in, they pull it out, throw the desktop in the trash, and say, we have a card. And then they're building these, using these for AI in China. From what I've heard, it's slowing it down, but it's really not stopping it at all. So I'm just curious if you think this really works on the one hand, these export controls they're doing, and on the other hand, the legality of the US. Like, is there, there has to be a limit at some point though, right? Where if a company's spending billions or even millions making products for a specific market, then last minute the US slaps it away. Like, at what point do they cry foul? <laughs> well, I mean, I think companies can cry foul on import export whenever they like, as well as taxes and the, the things you're used to hearing companies complain about. Uh, whether or not it works, I think, is a separate question, which is to suggest that any type of control of a market and, and economic flow tends to create black markets and behaviors of the type that you are describing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's of limited effectiveness, but there probably is still a value of having the the cleanest, most legal way of getting cards to some jurisdiction being prohibited because you have to go through extra steps um, from the from the government's perspective, right? The government doesn't want these high-end cards in these various jurisdictions, so they impose these rules. And again, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit because I don't think they work so terribly well, but I do understand how politicians and the government decided that these things should be prohibited from being sent to various places. So in long answer to your question, I don't think they work terribly well, but I do think that on the margins, they probably prevent certain amounts of volume from going to places that the government doesn't want them to go. Is that a great thing? I think reasonable minds can argue about that. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, it does have some effect, just not a complete effect. It's not like they'll be gone from various Mm -hmm. jurisdictions that would otherwise be prohibited. Well, and, you know, I think, the U.S. and other governments realize, of course, some of them are going to get through. But if our servers have a thousand and theirs have a hundred, this is the effect we want, anyways, right? We just want to be ahead. We know we can't ever prevent competition entirely in that regard, even if we try to, right? Yeah, once technology exists, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's right. All right, so I have a few random final reader mail questions. If you're sure. up for answering them. Uh, Vaughn Samuels writes in and says, good to see Mr. Hogue Salah back in form. I've wonder, been wondering, what are your thoughts on the upcoming Epic versus Google trial? I'm thinking I might put some money on Google for that one. What do you think? That'd be a good bet. Best wishes to Mrs. Hogue Law as well. And full disclosure, I know nothing about this. So <laughs> I, I don't even know what his question's about, but I'm sure you have an interesting answer. Sure. So Epic versus Apple, for those that don't know, was about Epic trying to get around the 30% cut that Apple takes from App Store in-app purchases by taking Fortnite and saying, well, you can give us the money directly instead of sending it through Apple, which was a violation of their terms and Google's terms through Google Play Store. And so both Apple and Google ripped Mm. Fortnite off of their stores and said, no, you're in violation of our terms. You can't be there. Epic versus Apple wound up going for Apple. Epic versus Google is taking a little bit longer because it wasn't on the same expedited basis as the Apple case. 
And interestingly enough, even though Android and Google doesn't require you to go through Google Play and allows uh, what I think the courts tend to call side loading Mm -hmm. um, outside of that store environment, I think the case against Google is probably a little bit stronger because Google is not the manufacturer of their phones, right? Mm. So much like we were just talking about earlier, Google actually has to work with a third party and say, no, you can't let them go off of the Play Store. You have to go get the cut. You have to do these various things. They have to enforce that by contract, which just tends to be more regulated and more potentially problematic for antitrust laws than a unilateral actor. Apple saying, no, this is our phone. These are our rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that the Google case is probably one that Epic is more likely to win than they were likely to win the Apple case. But Google's best argument is untested. We don't know whether or not them saying, look, you can sideload, you can do whatever you want. So we're not a monopolist controller of our access to our OS. That should win us today is, I think, pretty compelling from my side of the, the world. So I think somebody that wants to bet on Google, I'd be a little bit disinclined if only because I think that 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 relationship is different from the Apple case in such a way that Epic's more likely to win. But if you think that that side loading is going to win the day, that's why you would bet on Google in that particular instance. Hmm. And this may be a very stupid question, but I'm going to timidly ask it anyways. Like the reason Apple can get away with dictating things, it's because they openly say, ROS, our phone, we control it. We're the only one making it. And, and if anyone tried to use their iOS on a third-party phone that ran Apple software, Apple would say, no, we control that software. It's all patented, right? And then whereas with Google, they say it's open source, arguably. So it's like, well, you said it was open source. You said people could use it. Now you're basically saying they can't. That's the distinction, right? Yeah, I, I, close to it. I think the distinction is Google or has a to distinction, en- not enforce exactly their the restrictions thing. through another contract. So that's a, that's a more obvious restraint to trade. Apple is just making a policy decision on their end to say, this is what an iPhone is. This is what we'll allow. And Google has to go and agree with Samsung or whomever that, okay, this is what the Google Play Store is going to be. And you can't do weird things with it. You can't have a separate Epic game store on your phone or we're going to pull our OS is different from this is how Mm -hmm. our phone operates that we made. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's the distinction there. But I don't think it's a stupid question. I think the courts are struggling with exactly how all this works as well. Yeah, and I was just thinking, too, of like the line between, well, why doesn't someone try to make an iOS phone that's third party? And it's because Intel, uh, not Intel, Apple's locked it down and set and patented it. That's the only reason, really, right? I mean. Yeah, I mean, it's protected. It's absolutely their intellectual property. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons they won the Epic case was that the courts couldn't get around the fact that Epic appeared to be wanting to have access to their App Store oh. and OS customers without paying them anything, mm-hmm. right? And the courts basically looked at that and said, no, it's their intellectual property. They deserve something. You can argue 30% is too high, but your argument that you can just pay us directly gives them zero. Mm -hmm. And that's not right. Yeah. Um, George Zhang writes in and says, going backwards a month or so to the Unity drama, where any of the new terms of service calling for retroactive payments even legal or enforceable in the first place? What legal options do developers have when a game engine's publisher engages in shenanigans? And yeah, I mean, I haven't, I guess I've talked about it to a certain degree on the podcast already, but I just remember when the Unity thing happened uh, and I saw the headlines, I was like, eh, this must be sensationalized. And I sent it to a friend of mine who's a developer, like, is this really what they're saying? And he goes, 
yep, it's as dumb as it sounds. They actually try that. And I thought, is this even legal? I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but just hearing <laughs> what they tried sounded obviously illegal to me. So the good news for this question is that I actually did a video on the Unity Terms of Service and changes that they were trying to make on Hoglaw's YouTube channel on virtual legality. So if you were interested in a longer answer there, I do have a whole video covering that. The shorter version of it is the Terms of Service for Unity basically said that they could amend them when they Mm -hmm. wanted as long as they gave notice. They gave notice of about 90 days. Uh, and so that probably would have been acceptable just on the face of the terms of service as it existed when they made the change. There's some question as to how they existed beforehand and whether or not that would have been okay for games that released, you know, five years ago that are ostensibly uh, done and shouldn't owe royalties after the fact. But in terms of retroactivity, the one thing Unity didn't do that I think maybe got a little bit confused in the reporting was that they didn't go and ask for royalties on sales that had already been made. Mm-hmm. So the big thing that was an issue from my perspective on oh. their terms of service changes was that they didn't have a great way to audit what they considered installs. They were going to charge a fee for installs, and all their answers were essentially trust us and don't worry about it. No, we're not sending, we're not sending phone calls home, but we're going to be able to figure this out. And that always bothered me. As you literally couldn't unless you were doing that. Right. No, you couldn't. So you have to have some kind of algorithm or you're figuring out something that's at least going to be questionable. And there's no mechanism for me to even question. You say, okay, I had 93,000 installs. Now I owe you X amount of dollars. No. <laughs> Prove it. There was no mechanism for that. And mm-hmm. so I, I didn't like that in the terms. And I think that's really what they push back against the most as developers. And I think that's justifiable. But... What Unity did was try to say, after this point in time when these changes go into effect, there will be, there will be an install fee for, for, for products that are of a certain size, and the thresholds for that can be retroactive. Like, it's you know a million sales out in the wild. That doesn't have to happen after the change. It can be from before, but we're charging you from the change on. So it wasn't really ever as illegal as I think people kind of looked at it as, which is kind of changing the Mm. deal after it's been entered into. But this changed things going forward. And now, after the fact, they have it being self-reported in in a way that makes a lot more sense for normal royalties. But I think at the end of the day, Unity really just didn't understand what kind of hornet's nest they were kicking. Or if they did understand, they didn't care. And now the, the CEO is out. Unity has rescinded all of its all of its term changes and, and made a different kind of approach to royalties. And unfortunately, I think a lot of games and a lot of developers don't have a company that they can trust in unity. And that's, that's a problem because they're already, mm. they're already invested in whatever time and resources they've spent making a game for a few years, right? Unity was attractive to smaller developers and it's not very easy to go and change engines halfway through the process. Yeah, developers I spoke to said like the reason Unity is attractive to smaller developers is because of the freedom they allowed, because of how cheap it was to use. The second they would try to charge even remotely as much as Unreal, I saw so many people go, "We're going to use Unreal because it's better," you know. And I, I just, I don't know. The best argument I've seen made is that something happened there in the boardroom or something where they decided they need to 
pull money out of this for everything it's worth, no matter what, because they saw some future in 10 years where maybe they were going to go out of business anyways or something. Because that's really the... Uh, and this is uh, what I've heard a couple of people say, like, that's really the only argument that makes any logical sense because otherwise it's just hard to fathom how they could be that inept in coming up with this. Well, I mean, I think sometimes the MBA type of management gets a little bit above itself and, and decides to do something weird because they think it'll be more efficient in some way that they don't really think through on the, on the bottom line as to how it's going to be received by their customer base. I've seen that happen before. I definitely think that the driver here is that unity thought, that their current model was not viable over the long term, mm-hmm. whatever that term is for them. And so they needed to get more money out of the licenses. Now, making an install fee, I think, makes everybody crazy because you don't know whether or not that's going to eat up all your profits from the development standpoint. And that's that's assuming that they had a mechanism that everybody could trust and believe in actually delivered a number that you could be paid on. But royalties cover that because you're only ever paying X percent of the money that you actually make. That's a normal way of handling this. Unreal does its royalties percentages in a kind of normal fashion. And so I think that's really what scared people is that as a game developer, a lot of the people using Unity, a lot of the small game developers aren't necessarily doing it as their primary job, want to get a game out there. And if for some reason the installs, especially pirated mm-hmm. installs or installs that weren't yeah. paid for, went over the number of, of dollars that they received in, that they could somehow make it themselves worse off by releasing their little Stardew Valley clone or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, you're right. They, they had to have looked at their business model and said, this just isn't going to work. And if I had to guess, and I think I see this a lot with major corporations here. And, you know, sometimes the way I, I run even the Moore's Law is dead. I have to be careful. I don't make this mistake. I think they said to themselves, we want this much money to achieve this by this date. And then they reverse engineered what would be required to get there and said, oh, well, this is how much we're going to charge so we can hit this goal by this gate. And then they forgot, I mean, is that even going to work? And are you putting the cart before the horse? So many companies, I feel, just put the cart before the horse. We're going to do this. You know, like all the companies that said they were going to follow a blue ocean strategy because the we worked or something. And it's like not every product can be a we. I mean, I work for an automotive company that supplies parts and they were saying we want to follow the we business model. And I'm like, how is this even? And I think sometimes people just want to get there. Yeah, I I think that's the best argument I could make is someone said we need this money by this date to do this and then didn't think, you know, is that even possible? (laughs) And then they made this ridiculous model. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably right. You, you go and you hit the bogey, and then you come up with a way that that could potentially work. But even under like the most minimal questioning of like, how are you going to track installs? Yeah. They didn't have answers, so it's it was it's very not, puzzling. It was not fully baked. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, final question, of course, as it should be from QH Freddy says: How would you assess the competition or antitrust situation around ASML? Do you think that the fact that they have to cooperate and coordinate with many other subcontractors reduces their potential to conduct themselves in an anti-competitive manner? Or do you think they are just avoiding scrutiny by not trying to push boundaries? Like, they're just not milking too much for people to care. You know, and the ASML, I mean, long story short, you know, they make a fundamental part of what you need to make the latest silicon nodes and wafers. That's what it is. And they're the only one making it in the Netherlands, I believe. So... At what point is a monopoly argument just you're being mean because they do have a, a monopoly on this part, right? 
Yes. I mean, I think as you describe it, it sounds to me like what would have been called in the old United States jurisprudence, essential facilities, right? That, that they have some aspect of a bigger production line that has to go through them. Uh, but in the United States, the essential facilities doctrine has mostly been disclaimed. The Supreme Court hasn't held it as valid for a long, long time. It's one of the reasons why some of the FTC's arguments fell apart with Call of Duty. They wanted to call Call of Duty an essential facility to running a video game console, mm. which obviously is not a great fit. No. But as you described, it's, it's a cleaner fit, but it's a harder case to make in the United States. It might have some validity in other jurisdictions, but for the most part, I suspect a company like the one you describe is flying under the radar because it doesn't have a lot of uh, consumer cachet. What you're seeing right now is most of these regulators going after big name companies that people recognize, right? Amazon, Microsoft, uh, whoever else they go after tomorrow. Uh, these are the companies that are, are covered in like the Senate hearings. These are the companies that are being looked at by the EU. And so uh, they might hit the, the component manufacturers or, this, or the tech companies that are more potentially even more pertinent to a monopoly uh, investigation. But mm -hmm. that'll, that'll probably come after. There is politics that's involved in all of this. And that's, to some end, the top end item, right? Can we say Microsoft and can we say $70 billion? Mm -hmm. that, that's useful from a political perspective in a way that maybe chip manufacturers or component manufacturers are not. Yeah, and I'm just looking it up. Like Ta Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, they have a $436 billion market cap. And of course, NVIDIA is larger than that. And there are plenty of silicon companies that are. ASML's valuation, or uh, let me see here, market cap, I believe it's like 230. So that's actually bigger than, you know, for a company no one's heard of. That's, that's a pretty huge company, actually. But... I, I would guess there's two things here. Like number one, yeah, no one's heard of them, uh, and no, one, they they haven't pissed anyone off, frankly. And, and then number two, are they really stopping anyone from making it, or are they just the only ones who can? And I think right because, like, let's say there's some magic crystal you need <laughs> to make a computer. If there's the only one company selling it, are they really like a to to? sue someone for becoming a monopoly they have to be trying to become one if they're just making products and no one else is that's not really a monopoly just no one else is making them right right i mean i i i think it is a monopoly from a kind of economics perspective but it isn't illegal mm -hmm. uh from an antitrust perspective that's one of the things that i talk about a lot which is that becoming a monopoly having a dominant market position itself isn't illegal here or in the european union it's that abuse concept that has to come into play that you're doing something that is giving you monopoly power in an unwarranted fashion or is restraining trade after you have monopoly power that is bad. Becoming mm -hmm. a monopoly in general, the United States is in favor of as long as it's on the basis of providing a higher quality or a lower price or somehow doing something that's better for consumers because that's ultimately what the law wants, right, is good consumer welfare coming out of these companies. And, and we want a company that says, yeah, we got 98% of the market because we can do this for half the cost and twice as fast or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to look here. I mean, there's been a lot of articles about ASML recently. I'm not seeing one, at least immediately in the headlines, say why they're abusing power. It seems like a lot of these articles are just how they built a monopoly, not what they're doing to stop anyone else from challenging them. I, I, I'm technically like, at least at first glance, I'm not seeing anyone really suggest that yet, but I'm, I'm sure if 
And I'm sure they're very sensitive to that because they clearly have one. So if they did abuse any power, I think they know someone could jump on them immediately. Yeah. And I think that a good, well-run company is aware of those kinds of things, that we have that market control and we're going to try not to abuse it. And I don't think the FTC or the DOJ is aching for new opponents in this sphere. So until that kind of bad behavior happens, I don't think they're likely to be a target for the U.S. regulators, at least. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that is all of the questions and subjects I had for this episode, unless there's anything else you wanted to discuss. I suppose you could, you know, bring it up now or plug yourself again. (laughs) No, I I love having these conversations and I really appreciate being invited again uh, over here and, and talking about fun things in the world of legality and business. Uh, and video games and technology. That's that's what I love to do. And so, yeah, if, if folks like these conversations, I'm talking about them all the time in virtual legality. I, I was on break for a while here this year. You heard one of the comments say it was nice to see me back at full speed again. I'm not quite at full speed. For those that don't know, I had a stroke at the end of last mm-hmm. year, and that wound up taking an unscheduled vacation for the better part of this year as I tried to get through rehabilitation and back out onto the video side of things. So we're doing good right now. Don't anybody worry about that. But that's why there are perhaps a few less virtual legality episodes this year than there have been in recent years. Well, I'm glad you're back. Actually, I have a question. Have you ever been tempted to respond to a comment on YouTube and say something to the effect of, hey, I just had a stroke and even I can see why this is a dumb argument? (laughs) No, no. I think I probably only graduated to joking about it in the last month or two. Uh, But uh, no, I think think the worst comments I got were immediately thereafter. There were some YouTube commenters, because the internet is the internet, Mm -hmm. that said, you know, it's a good thing you got a stroke after the about some comment with respect to sony or microsoft or what have you and it's like internet commenters just got to internet comment sometimes Mm -hmm. well and i think we both know that 99.99 percent of those comments would never have been made in person you know and i don't know if you've ever like who was it i'm trying to think of an example i think it was burt kreischer who's a comedian who said one time he got obsessive found someone who was being mean to him on twitter found his number called him and said, this is actually me. Why are you being so mean? And the guy started crying and just said, I don't know, I had a bad day. And he's like, I think if you really look behind it, saying the obvious, but to the point that it was interesting to hear someone actually call someone out on it, and them just immediately capitulating and saying, oh, I didn't mean to be mean. I was just trying to be edgy, and I was having a bad day. So, um, But I, I am at least very happy that you're back and doing well. I'll say that. Yeah, no, I am too. It's been a weird year, but I'm happy to be doing these things and happy to be talking with folks like you. All right. Well, everybody, if you want to find him, there will be many links to his content in the description below. And for everyone else, remember, please subscribe to Moore's Laws Dead on YouTube. Ring the bell button. Tell your friends about us. Share this. Play our podcast on repeat nonstop. And, uh, you know, consider supporting us on Patreon to ask us questions and get access to stuff like Die Shrink as well. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And have a good rest of your week, everybody. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me. And I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Laws Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Laws Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co hosted by my brother Dan, 
Audio editing by Gerard Cortez. Renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont. And special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Carrie Nosugad as well. Find all of our information at www.moreslawsdead.com on the about slash support page. In the event you do want to hire me for consulting work, hire Gerard for audio work, hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work, or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Carrie Nosugata as well. You can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address. Moore's Law is Dead, P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Law is Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Law is Dead content truly possible. Every month and really every day, depending on who you're talking about, me, Gerard, Dan, and John philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out. Don't get us wrong. We love our sponsors, but we love directly working for you, our fans, much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guests questions, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early, ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and loose ends live streams ahead of the recording, and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law is Dead podcasts, in addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And hey... If you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much. But like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it. the patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, Z Chitz, Daniel D, Christopher Ricks, Aaron Close, Jan Renner, Daniel High, GZ Ziggy, Brian Rickleman, MJB1, Sam Miller, Deke, SNES Chalmers, Jerem Ferriera, Valcom Alev, Nicholas Puckner, Andrew S, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Gregory Sacker, Sarcastro, Evan Dingle, Greg Wontek. Chris Rich, 3DS Play 08, Hal Booma, HeartForum.com, Compressed Earthblocks, Shredbird, Dr. Foreman, Benjamin Cannon, Jonathan Blank, Franco Frederick, Jake223, Jake Martin, Holden Mobley, Zicky, Christopher A. Tam. Chris Ray Butler, Sammy Malas, Stefan Hart, Meat and Pork, Tim Robb, Jordan Simkovic, Ian Clifford, Travis Gooden, Julian Leek, The Foss Haas, Nan Nan, Deepest Learners, Stefan, Mads, Sutsu Taylor, Stefan Coates, Michael McGee, Greg, Patrick Grow, Amiable Chief, Tommy, Mark Mitchell, Roger Davies, I Should, Mark Raidmaker, Cameron, James Anderson, Cole Attic, Judson N, Cameron, Wesley Sager, Henry Zhang, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Chrysantine, The Eternal Dreamers, Neith Razink, Hexapuma, Reginald Ari, Take Autumn, Jackson Miller, GSMMH, Colin Tadards, Game and Sense Reagan, Jeff Sadler, Loophole 35, Windstar, James I, Raider, Corey Leonard, Little Germany, Shay, Pulse Media, Dave Schultz, Melodic Warrior, Mac Daffy, Stephen Dick, Chuck Glidden, Brett Jones, Austin Haggerty, Justin Bustle, I-711-700K, Joe Fett, Toka, Hardland, Slush Posse, to Jamie Whitworth, Jansen Ingema, Joseph Kelly, David Sebastian, Samuel Park, Earth Taurus, Keith Moore, Himsa Gung, 
Tails, 2299, Mio, Val, Verga, John, Sisyphos, Fenty, CZ, The Forbidden Juice, Pearly Twin, RB Razor, AC, Lord Starstream, Michael Cozy, Dr. J Matt, Alex Vega, 3D, Brian Wright, John Swin, Rodent PC, Win Wang, Joel Martina, Kikum, Albert Gunn, Solarized 80, Trevor Renfro, Yeti, Thalo215, Matthew Marlowe, Raisin Biscuit, Jeff Johnson, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 